Did you know that your phone can be a powerful force for change? With Credo Mobile, it can, because Credo donates $150,000 every month to groups like Friends of the Earth, the ACLU, and Planned Parenthood. Switch to Credo Mobile, the carrier that stands for women's rights, the environment, social justice, and so much more. Learn more at credo.com slash best. That's credo.com slash best. And now... Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about just a few of the ways that it is in the nature of corporate media to ruin political discourse by dismissing progressive perspectives entirely and preferring hype and controversy over substance. And stick around at the end of the show for a discussion about some of the threats to independent progressive media in the age of Trump. And speaking of protecting independent media, if you'd like to support the work we do, only two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. We are in particular need of new members right now, so if you have a few dollars a month available to help us produce this show, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now, clips today come from Counterspin, Citations Needed, The Tom Hartman Program, No Filter, and The David Pakman Show. With the presidential election over a year away, corporate media seem to be offering a preview of the sort of thing we have to look forward to. One is the time-worn tradition of going to rural white communities to take the pulse of the nation. Fair election analyst Julie Holler pointed to a July 22nd New York Times story under the web headline, These Michigan Voters Show How Trump's Go Back Attack May Help Him, in which reporters ventured to a Trump stronghold in Michigan to bring readers the front-page news that people who supported Trump in 2016 in the face of his racist attacks still support him in the face of his racist attacks. The Times, Stephanie Saul and Jeremy Peters described their look into St. Clair County, quote, in this overwhelmingly white district, an hour north of Detroit, where his popularity remains high, his comments left people in the familiar position of having to choose a side in the aftermath of another Trump-instigated outrage. And they chose his, close quote. The article went on to talk a great deal about the importance of Michigan to the presidential election as a swing state, about counties that had swung from Obama to Trump, and about how close polls are in those counties right now. All that would imply that St. Clair County is one of those, where people were more ambivalent about Trump, and therefore it's informative about which way Michigan might go this time around. But no, St. Clair County went for Romney by seven points in 2012 and for Trump by 31 points. Disguising that fact, Holler notes in a story in which the people all seem to be of a Trumpian persuasion, makes it hard to escape the conclusion that the point of these person-in-the-street interviews was to give Trump supporters a platform rather than to take a real look at what Michigan voters think. One thing such stories do achieve, 
an echo chamber for right-wing talking points. In this case, the Time interviews a local Republican strategist who comments that the Democratic Congresswomen under attack, quote, very much represent the loony left, close quote. This quote was then selected by a Times editor to feature in the print edition subhead, Michigan voters who worry more about the loony left, thus twisting a Republican catchphrase into voter worries. It's a common theme of Trump coverage that's now extending to election coverage. When people protest something Donald Trump does or says, corporate media feel the need to also talk about the people who aren't reacting as a sort of faux balance, giving us Trump supporters support Trump stories. At times, the orchestration required becomes apparent, as when CNN on July 16th and 17th presented a panel of what viewers were told were eight Republican women from Dallas who don't see anything wrong with President Trump telling four Democratic congresswomen to go back where they came from. Well, sharp-eyed viewers quickly pointed out that these apparently randomly selected Republican women Offering insights like that Trump's comments couldn't be racist because he, quote, didn't say a color, close quote, were actually dedicated Trump activists, members of a group called Trumpets for America. And they'd appeared multiple times on CNN in the past, likewise identified only as Republican women. CNN's response to the criticism, it ran the segment again for the fifth time, this time with a brief nod to the women's affiliations. Meanwhile, the underlying premise of the segment, that viewers need to hear again and again that Republicans who have supported Trump through his racist xenophobic campaign and his racist xenophobic administration continue to support him after his latest racist xenophobic tirade remains unquestioned. In February earlier this year, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, representative from New York, and Ed Markey, a senator from Massachusetts, announced what they called the Green New Deal, which was broadly speaking, and this is extremely broad, a massive transition away from fossil fuels with very aggressive targets to reduce carbon emissions and try to mitigate catastrophic climate change. This is the biggest, boldest, most frankly realistic legislative framework to actually do something about climate crisis. And it was immediately met with a torrent of articles rushing to sort of highlight the tensions between labor and Ocasio-Cortez. Now, to be fair, it is true that the Sunrise Movement and Ocasio-Cortez did not really consult with the major labor groups before they announced the plan. And there was definitely some territorial contest going on. But one couldn't really read any any coverage of the Green New Deal without this new sort of tension between labor and climate change activists. So you have Reuters in February 2019, labor unions fear Democrats' Green New Deal poses job threat. New York Post in March 2019, behind the Green New Deal, an elite war on the working class. (laughs) 
That's my favorite one. Reason in April 2019 had the headline, Joe Biden courts blue collar voters, says I am a union man. And ABC News, also in April, ran the report, 2020 presidential candidate Joe Biden appeals to labor unions, blue collar workers. And both of these articles took pot shots at the Green New Deal as a sort of liberal elitism thing. There's a few problems with this. There was a study done by Data for Progress, a progressive think tank, uh, in March of 2019, 350 Action and, and YouGov polling that found that labor being in a union tracks with support for the Green New Deal, and it remains broadly popular with 59% of voters in the U.S. supporting the policy and only 29 opposed. But you can actually adjust for other factors, and you find out that being in a union in and of itself correlates with support for the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. Right. Not this knee-jerk union labor opposes this, which is what you see in headlines. If you actually look at the data, union, people who are in unions broadly support it. Right. And so you have a sort of subset of unions, which are people who are construction, oil, gas, people who work in mining, obviously coal mining. You have that these workers, which are going to fit into a sort of traditional mold of white rural working class workers really become the focus point of where this tension lies. Mm -hmm. What was basically a turf war between heads of labor, heads of these unions, and AOC and the Green New Deal, because they didn't consult them, was turned into this existential crisis where people who cared about climate change were painted as elite detached liberals who were going to hand Pennsylvania to Trump again, versus these hard hat, real salt of the earth types. Without any indication, and none of these reports that we mentioned, and none that we'll mention later, none of them really talk about what the stakes are, which is to say, the end of the earth. I mean, the stakes could not be higher, but it's treated as a boutique issue that only rich liberal Hollywood donors care about. Well, right. And so you get into this hard hat versus hippies, right? So there are the tree huggers over there, the flower children, and then, you know, the coal smudged hard hat wearing real American. But, you know, this is a trope that is really exploited throughout our media and Unsurprisingly, no more so than on Fox News, Media Matters recently reported that in the last week of March 2019, Fox aired more than twice as many primetime segments discussing the Green New Deal as MSNBC and CNN combined. And also unsurprising, the coverage that was aired on Fox was, quote, riddled with misinformation, mockery, and climate change skepticism, end quote. So what you get in the polling, even when you see polling on Green New Deal breaking along partisan lines with uh, Republicans and right-leaning respondents overwhelmingly negative about Green New Deal, they also tell pollsters that they're highly informed about it. So it's like, you know, they'll say, oh, yeah, 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 I know a lot about that and I'm opposed to it. When really this has to do with the Fox News media machine and the right wing media machine of painting AOC and supporters of the Green New Deal as hippy dippy socialist loons, which actually animates a lot of the animus against this policy. So you actually see this play out in the actual polling. There's a Yale George Mason poll that found that support for the Green New Deal is lower among Republicans who watch Fox News more frequently than it is among Republicans who watch it less often. This was a survey conducted in April of this year, and it showed that support for the Green New Deal is just 22% among Republicans who watch Fox more than once per week, as opposed to support for it is at 56% among Republicans who watch Fox once per week on average or less. But it's actually more profound than that. 
Also in April, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, extremely right wing, released the results of a poll finding that, quote, 73% of voters support a cleaner, stronger energy agenda that uses more American energy and continues environmental progress compared to 21% of voters who support the Green New Deal. So that's how it was framed, the 73% versus 21%. But this is what the questions were on the poll. It was whether you support this. America focusing on using its resources responsibly and safely by implementing a cleaner, stronger energy agenda that prioritizes investments in innovation and advanced technology to reduce emissions. That's one. That got 73%. This got 21%. America focusing on requiring a transition to the Green New Deal's proposal to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions from the U.S. economy in 10 years, regardless of cost. (laughs) So you see, like, that's totally disingenuous polling where, you know, the thing that was apparently 73% overwhelming response positivity was not the Green New Deal one. It's like, yeah, but (laughs) nothing in there contradicts anything in the Green New Deal. It's like the Obamacare thing. You know, if you describe what's actually in, like, the Affordable Care Act, and you say, so there's this thing called the Affordable Care Act, and here's here's what you get, and whatever. It is problematic, but but here's the stuff. Do people like it? And they're like, overwhelmingly. And you're like, what about Obamacare? And they're like, oh, fuck that. That's horrible. No way. That's like a socialist government takeover, and fuck Obama. And it's like, oh, because you're just talking about the people and the name associated with this policy and not the policy itself. Yeah. And then there's, so there's the, the reality is that the right only gives a shit about unions when they can use them as a wedge. But if you actually look at the quotes and you could do this on your own time, if you try to find quotes from people like Phil Smith, the director of communications at the United Mine Workers, who represent about 80,000 coal mine workers, if you try to look up quotes from union heads like him online, it's either two stories. It's about how these – it's an anti-environmentalism story or it's a story about how unions may be sympathetic to or going to Trump. Nobody gives a shit at Politico or to a large extent the Washington Post, although they're not as bad, or Reuters about unions unless they can use them as a wedge. There's no sense that you know here's how coal miners have suffered. Here's how coal miners have, have disease or losing their pensions. Occasionally get a process story here and there. But mostly the extent to which – these publications care about workers is when they can use them against the other thing they're not supposed to care about, which is catastrophic climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And I think that really says all that you need to say, which is there's a selectivity here, which is something we talk a lot about on the show about emphasis, where it's not that there aren't real tensions within labor. It's that those tensions are selectively highlighted and cynically wielded by both centrist and right-wing media to undermine dealing with the real issue at hand, which is climate change. And then you have the other issue, which we'll get into with our guest about who even gets to be counted as a worker, even within the United States, forget, you know, workers in the global South who are going to disproportionately be affected by climate change without a doubt. In fact, they already are. Mm -hmm. This is no longer, you know, in the future. This is now the people within the United States, undocumented immigrants, people who are not in unions, who are going to be severely undermined by the sporadic weather patterns brought on by climate change, people in agriculture, construction, they just sort of don't count. They're not workers that are worthy of seeking out. So, you have this very selective, very tokenizing understanding of what is labor. And so when they say, you know, labor versus climate change, really what they mean to say is a very specific kind of labor, a very specific racialized labor. Only the only the labor we mean in this specific case. Right. But otherwise, we don't give a shit about it. 
the hard hat versus hippie media trope was really born on May 9th, 1970. There certainly were articles about competing class, race, generational, as we've discussed on this show previously in the 60s and 70s, of course. But in early May 1970, there was an article in the New York Times headlined, War Foes Here, meaning New York, Attacked by Construction Workers. And it opens this way. Helmeted construction workers broke up a student anti-war demonstration in Wall Street yesterday, chasing youths through the canyons of the financial district in a wild noontime melee that left around 70 persons injured. The workers then stormed City Hall, cowing policemen and forcing officials to raise the American flag to full staff from half staff, where it had been placed in mourning for the four students killed at Kent State University on Monday, end quote. So the article talks about there were mass protests that week against the escalation of bombing in Southeast Asia by the Nixon administration, which also coincided with the National Guard shooting students at Kent State. And in response to these protests in downtown Manhattan, apparently all these construction workers wearing their construction gear and their hard hats, many of them actually working on building the World Trade Center at the time, which would be open two years later, attacked these students and protesters and other people. And it really had this visual cue of hard hats versus hippies. And this idea of the subversives being, you know, knocked over the head and, you know, made to respect the flying flag because of whatever, patriotism and dropping bombs on people, right? So that trope really entered into this media lexicon and has been used again and again, as we've seen, and no more so kind of shifting from the war framework now into a more environmental framework. I think the war framework is a good one because Sarah Lazar helped write the show and, and edited the piece that it's based on written by Michelle Chen, I think had a great analogy. She said, when we talk about climate change versus labor and we don't talk about the laborers in the global South, it's just like with the way we cover war only in the context of how it affects American troops and not those affected by the violence overseas. And so you see this, mm-hmm. you know, forget, forget interviewing laborers who don't fit the sort of white hard hat stereotype. I mean, the millions and hundreds of millions of laborers in the global South who will be affected by climate change are just a non-issue. They, they just don't exist in any of these, any of these articles we mentioned. And they will never exist in any of the articles you mentioned because they're not considered a legitimate stakeholder, even though they're the ones by every single objective metric that will suffer the most. Today's episode is sponsored by Blinkist, the app that's here to help you read more books than you thought possible, or at least get the core insights out of them. Just as I curate and distill the most important points about political issues, Blinkist does that for thousands of nonfiction books, condensing them down into just 15 minutes for you to read or listen to as audiobooks. So you can use Blinkist to save time on books you don't have time to otherwise read. Uh, As I've mentioned before, I actually use Blinkist to refresh myself on books I read a long time ago, but I just came across yet another reason to use Blinkist. My recommendation for a Blinked book today is Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. And I haven't read this book in full, so reading the Blink isn't a refresher. And I could theoretically find the time to read it in full, But in this case, I chose to blink this book because I don't think I could take 
reading the whole thing. All the gory details of how terrible Facebook is and always has been. So whether you don't have time or the stomach to read the political books you want to, check out Blinkist for yourself. For a limited time, they have a special offer for our listeners. Go to Blinkist.com best to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com best to start your free seven-day trial. And of course, you can cancel anytime. Blinkist.com best. You can't turn on a TV news channel these days, at least a cable TV news channel, without seeing some TV pundit. And in fact, this morning I saw the TV host, Stephanie Rule, going off on this whole thing about how Democrats need to move to the middle. What the hell does that mean? I mean, do they mean the Democrats should say it's just fine that 30 million Americans have no health, have no health insurance? Do they, do we, do we love the big banks making, I think they just made $230 billion in profits, um, the, the best year they ever had while ripping us off and putting our economy at risk? Is that, is that what move to the middle means? The status quo? Oh, things are just fine the way they are. Let's just make little tiny tweaks. Is that what they're talking about? I don't get it. I, you know, I, I, I listen to this conversation that the, the Stephanie Rule was happening with a Republican consultant who was saying, yes, the Democrats need to move to the middle. And uh, a and a genuine progressive, and I'm sorry his name is not coming to the top of my head right now, um, who was trying to push back, but he really didn't want to piss off the, the host, right? The, the first rule of being a panelist on TV is don't disagree too strongly with the host. And and she kept saying, but, you know, if they moved, you know, it's all about the it's all about the 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 people who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump. Well, let me get back to that in just a minute. Um, Does move to the middle mean that the fossil fuel and chemical industry should continue to poison us and our planet? I mean, is it just fine that the drug companies and for-profit colleges and charter schools are literally ripping us off to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars a year, transferring that money out of the pockets of working people, the middle class, retired people, young people, and into the pockets of, of uh, you know, billionaire CEOs? Is it just fine that the American dream is dead? That for the first time, literally in the history of the United States, a generation is not going to do better than their parents? Is that what is that what these people mean when they say Democrats need to move to the middle? That there's no reason, there's no need to bring, you know, we don't need union jobs back. Is that what they say? Is that what they're talking about? Is Sherrod Brown's call for protectionist trade policies only doing it the right way through Congress instead of some stupid presidential proclamation and trying to negotiate with the president of China who's going to eat your lunch? Is that is that too far out? For these guys? I mean, what the hell is the setter beyond the status quo? And if it's the status quo, who wants it? The logic that I that I think I was getting from what I was seeing on television this morning, and I've been and I've been hearing uh, this was the first time I saw it, you know, from one of the hosts. Actually, not the first time. I've heard Chuck Todd say the same thing, um, who's not, you know, identified politically. Right. He's supposed to be a real reporter. Um, and of course, you hear it from, you know, people, uh, people who are former Republicans or current Republicans, they're all telling Democrats, move to the middle, move to the middle. 
And like I said this morning, the argument was, well, what about those people who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump? Well, what was the signature call for action, essentially? What was the motto back in 2008 and then again in 2012? What was the motto of the Obama campaign? Change. Hope and change. Change is radical. Change is not status quo. Now, tragically, Barack Obama was stuck with a Republican-controlled House and Senate for most of his presidency. Um, you know, I, I get it that for the first two years, the Democrats held the House, but uh, or excuse me, held the Senate. But there was um, and 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 they and they actually they did control the House for for quite a bit of that time. But my point is that there were only 72 days there where they had a veto-proof Senate. And that's when they passed Obamacare and, you know, about a dozen other pieces of really significant legislation. But when people voted for Obama, they weren't that was he was not the middle, in my opinion. They thought they were voting for a liberal. He was campaigning on let's make universal health care. And that's what he tried to bring about with Obamacare. He was campaigning on we're going to do something about these banksters. When he got in, he discovered, you know, essentially, I don't know if he couldn't do it or if he didn't think that he had the political capital or it wasn't, you know, in his in his, uh, you know, the fire in his belly or whatever. But, you know, he never did anything about the banks. Um, but it was about change. And I would say I would I would strongly argue here. My pushback on this argument that I was hearing this morning uh, on MSNBC that I hear all the time, actually, frankly, across, you know, uh, political talk shows and that the Republicans are really trying to push. Because, in my opinion, because they know that if the Democratic candidate is same old, same old, if it's somebody from the new Democrat coalition, if it's a recycled Bill Clinton, basically, the Democrats will lose. Donald Trump will eat their lunch, our lunch, in my opinion, if we don't have somebody who has who is either a solid, true progressive, which so far looks to me like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, or somebody who has embraced solid, true pro progressive positions and, and, and done so in an, in an intellectual uh, framework, in an understanding of what social democracy is and democratic socialism is. They may not like using that word, that phrase, and I get that. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. If you know, if, if that's going to increase your chances of winning, do what you got to do. But this whole move to the middle thing, this is just complete horse crap in my mind. I mean, I I don't, and and how anybody who wants the Democrats to win could be listening to the Republicans' advice on this blows my mind. And then on top of that, you got, you know, oh, well, what about that socialism word? We're scared to death of that. You know, 1988, George Herbert Walker Bush said of Michael Dukakis, quote, with the American tradition of entrepreneurship and free enterprise at the very moment when other government, you know, he, he said Dukakis broke with the American tradition of entrepreneurship and free enterprise at the very moment when other world governments are abandoning socialism. This, there's a, this great piece on Think Progress today, the 90-year history of Republicans calling Democrats socialists, and thus telling Democrats, move to the middle, please. Paul Ryan, quote, social security right now is a collectivist system. 
excuse me. Barry Goldwater was actually a, a pretty good friend of Lyndon Johnson. They were two of the most powerful men in the United States Senate. And that that association kind of transcended their their political differences. And he wrote a letter. Excuse me. He wrote a letter to uh, Lyndon Johnson when when uh, Jack Kennedy offered him the vice presidency, saying, please do not join John Kennedy's socialist presidential ticket. Quote, I still have a numb feeling of despair over your actions of yesterday in accepting the candidacy for vice president. It's difficult to imagine a person like you. This is Goldwater writing to Johnson. Friends. It's difficult to imagine a person like you running in a second spot to a weaker man, but it is even more incredible to try to understand how you are going to try to embrace the socialist platform of your party. That was 1960. That was 1960. 1960. John McCain in 2008. St. John. He says uh, Obama wasn't just a socialist, he was also a liar. At least in Europe, said McCain, the socialist leaders who so admire my opponent are upfront about their objectives. So what, you know, what is this? I mean, what, what are we talking about? Ronald Reagan. This was back in 1967 when, when um, uh, LBJ was pushing through Medicare. And Ronald Reagan did this recording for the American Medical Association. All of us can see what happens once you establish the precedent that the government can determine a man's working place and his working methods, determine his employment. From here, it's a short, well, he starts out, the doctor begins to lose freedoms. You know, first you decide that the doctor can have so many patients. They're equally divided among the various doctors by the government. But then the doctors aren't equal. You know, he goes to... And, and once you establish the president that the government can determine a man's working place, his working methods, determine his employment, from here it's a, sort, a short step to all the rest of socialism, to determining his pay. And pretty soon your son won't decide when he's in school, where he will go, or what he'll do for a living. He'll wait for the government to tell him where he'll work. One of these days, he said, if you do not stop Medicare, socialist Medicare, this is Ronald Reagan in 1967, if we do not stop socialist Medicare, one of these days you and I are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in America when men were free. Newt Gingrich, when, when Bill Clinton pre presented Hillary Care, which was, you know, kind of a pretty decent plan. It was sort of a variation on you know, uh, basically Obamacare. Newt Gingrich takes the floor of the House and says, Bill Clinton's health care plan is socialism, now or later. It's a plan to, quote, seize control of the health care system and centralize power in Washington. During Dwight Eisenhower's administration. See, these are all the examples of Republicans telling Democrats, move to the middle, stay away from that changey stuff, stay away from that socialism, oh my God. President Dwight Eisenhower's Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, Oveda Kolb Hobby, denounced the Democratic plan to provide free polio vaccines to children. Now, I remember this. I was, you know, in elementary school in the 1950s when, when uh, Dwight Eisenhower was president. And in school, we lined up and we took the sugar cube, and then later on, we lined up and we took a shot for polio. To, and, and it ended polio. It was free. And she said, this is a backdoor leading to socialized medicine. This was, this was Eisenhower's HEW secretary. In 19, going back before that, 1945, when Harry Truman proposed a single-payer health care system. Yes, President Harry Truman proposed the first national single-payer health care system. 
The American Medical Association said this is, quote, socialized medicine and Truman's White House staffers are followers of the Moscow party line. They distributed 55 million pamphlets featuring a fabricated quote associated, uh, attributed to Vladimir Lenin saying, quote, socialized medicine is the keystone to the arch of the socialist state or the communist state. Before that, you had the American Liberty League. And now we've got, you know, Mike Pence telling CPAC last weekend, America will never be a socialist country. Mitch McConnell, America needs strong borders, not socialism. What do you think these people are talking about when they say the center? Can somebody please identify this for me? I don't I don't get it. Does it mean that that we're just supposed to go with democratic politicians who take a lot of money from big corporations who 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 are there because of pharma or or you know high tech or something? Today's episode is sponsored by Bombas, and you probably don't think that much about your socks all that often. Maybe you do, no judgment, but if you don't, maybe it's because you don't think there's much to think about. Whereas I have been a convert to Bombas socks for years and still appreciate each pair for their style and comfort when I put them on. And I just saw their new line of performance running and workout socks, and I'm happy to see that they've evolved even farther beyond all of the fancy features I already liked them for. But the thing about Bombas I think will put you over the top is their mission, which goes far beyond selling socks. The founders learned that socks are the number one requested item at homeless shelters, so they built Bombas from the ground up to sell great socks to customers and give away great socks to those in need, one for one. To take advantage of our special offer, buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash best today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off. Bombas.com slash best. The clip that we're about to play infuriated me this morning, uh, but it's it's really a good way of starting this discussion. So let me just uh, give the audience a little bit of context before we go to this clip. There has been this mainstream media effort, and they've been working overtime to divide Bernie Sanders and <coughs> Elizabeth Warren. And what they do is they make it appear as though they're the same when it comes to policy, but one candidate is much more palatable than the other. Now, we know that both points are untrue, and we're gonna get into that after we play this clip. And just to give you guys context into what this clip is, it's from MSNBC over the weekend, where a former US assistant attorney, Mimi Roca, tries to make a point about why she dislikes Bernie Sanders. Take a look. For me, as, you know, again, I'm not the political analyst here, but just as a woman, probably considered a somewhat moderate Democrat, I, Bernie Sanders makes my skin crawl. And I can't even identify for you what exactly it is, but I, I see him as sort of a, a not pro-woman candidate. Wow. Great analysis there. So she doesn't even know what it is. She just knows that he makes her skin crawl. And prior to that comment, this panel, which consisted of three people and the host, just it was a Bernie bash fest. There wasn't a single person on that panel that supported him, which I thought was fascinating because they're not even trying to do this false equivalency thing anymore. They're just outright bashing him. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, look, they hate Bernie Sanders and they have a total bias against Bernie Sanders, which is embarrassing. I mean, I, you know, I, I am someone obviously like I am purely in the opinion business. I'm a socialist. Right. I never I mean, I'm sure some people I can already hear certain uh, fans of certain candidates whining and complaining, but I would never do a segment that was analogous to that. I couldn't tell you why. And I think that the, you know, it's just something that makes my skin crawl. But the thing that's really amazing about it and really important is it's not just the disdain for Bernie Sanders, which is stunning and a double standard that you would never see for any other candidate. It's the disdain for what he represents and the tens of millions of people that he's speaking to and representing like no other candidate. That's a disdain that says, I don't understand why there's people who are really out here struggling need a candidate to actually deliver for them. Because for me, you know, politics is all just a TV segment. It's all just make believe and, you know, uh, hanging out with a very narrow set of people and gossiping about personality preferences. It's disgusting. So we've seen great policy come from both candidates. Uh, now, you and I are pretty honest about what our preferences are in terms of uh, which candidate appeals to us the most. I, I, I really liked Elizabeth Warren's proposal when it came to student loan debt. And then Bernie Sanders came forward with something even better. And I've been very honest about that. When for, when foreign policy comes into play, there are some significant differences between the two. But the conversation doesn't really have anything to do with that when you hear it happening on the mainstream media. The conversation really is between socialism and capitalism. And I want you to get into that a little bit because, of course, Bernie Sanders has no problem calling himself a democratic socialist, whereas Elizabeth Warren is a little different. Yeah, I mean, I think they really do have different politics and a different worldview. And I absolutely, you know, support Bernie Sanders for a variety of those reasons. I think he is making a more structural case. And I think he's making something that is much more simple and deliverable in a way. And I think you see that actually in the student loan uh, cancellation proposals. Like his is just, Let's just get rid of it. Let's do it, not create a new means test. But I think with regards, and those are really important conversations, obviously, particularly also when you get to the foreign and military policy, which I don't think we can separate from domestic policy. It's an interdependent process. But on the media, in a way, and I say this as obviously a very strong Sanders supporter and someone who uh, does have some critiques of certain parts of Elizabeth Warren's policies, they're disrespecting her as well mm -hmm. because they're not talking about what she's putting forward. They're simply using her as a foil against somebody that they have weird psychological issues with and class aversion to. And so that is actually dangerous for her in the long term. Say she did sort of break ahead of Sanders in that scenario, that would be you know terrible as far as I'm concerned. But say that happens. All of these people that are gassing her right now, just because they have this weird fixation with with you know against Bernie. Uh, in the media, I don't know how resilient that support would be. I mean, for some of them, maybe, but for a lot of them, probably not. Because at the end of the day, as that woman in that clip herself said, you know, she's a quote unquote moderate Democrat, which we all know what that means. She's, you know, highly pro corporate, I would assume. You know, during the Obama administration, uh, he had nominated uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren to be part of his cabinet, and the Republicans refused to confirm her nomination. I bring that up because. The, the same concerns that those Republicans had about 
Senator Warren reigning in. And at that point, by the way, she wasn't a senator. She decided to run as senator after Republicans pulled that stunt. But the reason why they didn't even consider her was because they did not like where she was coming from when it came to economic policies. Now, the same concerns that Republicans had there, I would argue, are the same concerns that you're seeing from these members of the mainstream media. So I think you're absolutely right in that they're so concerned with maintaining the power structure that we have in America today, the same power structure that puts people like us and average Americans at a disadvantage, that they absolutely would turn on her as soon as Bernie Sanders is out of the race. Right now, they're using this as a tool to divide the progressive vote, and I think it's abundantly clear. Sorry, that I wasn't guess. a question, it was more of a comment, <laughs> but I, I wanna get your thoughts on that. I am, I'm the sultan of uh, comments as questions, so I feel <laughs> you. But I think that, yeah, you're totally right about that. The question though that I do have that's a little bit more critical though is to Warren, right? I think the Warren campaign right now is making a calculation that they benefit from that dynamic. Yes. And I think that's leading people to question, you know, when the story, in the beginning of the campaign, the stories where Wall Street says, Nobody besides Sanders or Warren. Now those stories are changing. And I agree with you that those things could flip because obviously, as compared to the other candidates, she has a much more serious record about Wall Street. But I do think that what Bernie represents is not only more radical policy, which it is, but I think it's also somebody who doesn't kowtow to these people. It isn't, it's like, look, I don't think you're necessarily smart. I don't think that you should have the power that you hold. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care how clever you are. And I don't think it's just as simple as dealing with corruption. We've got to deal with a bigger picture uh, structure and problems. And that's why Bernie you know, has been willing, I think also, in some ways to me, it's not just that foreign policy matters a lot in of itself. It's another real yardstick of how courageous somebody's gonna be, right? Like yep. if you're willing to go against foreign policy consensus, on any number of issues, whether it's calling for freeing Lulah, whether it's talking about the Middle East in a really smart, uh, clear way, which isn't even particularly radical, it's just commonsensical, right? But is against the kind of standard talking points of a group like APAC or something like that, that shows a serious orientation. And I think these people smell that mm -hmm. and they that's why they loathe and hate him so much. And I think that that, really is a dividing line and we're going to have to start asking like Senator Warren I think you know are you part of a kind of structural argument or are you trying to kind of be like the the progressive that Mira Tandon can be cool with as a way to like not have the whole thing really be broken and recreated which I think we need yeah I think that's a great point you know I want to ask one other question about a story that's related and it was making its rounds last Friday. So I first saw it in the Washington Post, this whole notion that Bernie Sanders is a hypocrite because he's underpaying his campaign workers. Now, if you do a deep dive in the story and actually investigate it yourself, he has a unionized campaign. He pays a living wage of $15 an hour. And the real argument was that people were working longer hours. So if you divvy up that wage, with the longer hours, they're actually getting paid less. But what's the real story in terms of the climate within the campaign? Because it's being spun as if these campaign workers are really angry with Bernie Sanders and they really think he's a hypocrite, but that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, as far as my understanding from people that I, you know, I, I do know some people in the campaign, there's a huge amount of cohesion and sense of shared purpose. And most of the kind of feedback that came out of that leaked story was, why would somebody do this when we were making progress 
and our negotiations, right? And I do think bigger picture, and it's not to say, I mean, look, everybody is, you can critique anybody, whatever, good luck in people for anybody negotiating a better contract for themselves, right? But the notion that the media, which is systemically underplayed labor stories, period, including like the, the structural change of labor in this country uh, that it puts so many people in such a worse position, all of a sudden is kind of fixated on this sort of little point settling about Bernie. Again, it's just so transparent and embarrassing. And we also have reporting, frankly, showing that you know there's much more serious uh, you know sort of campaign compensation questions in Pete Buttigieg's campaign and mm-hmm. Joe Biden's campaign and Elizabeth Warren's campaign. And so it just becomes like they will stop at nothing and it's transparent and embarrassing. It should go without saying that things we don't have names for go without saying. For years, that's been the deal with corporate media and racism. Actions, policies, statements, and ideas that regular people have no trouble identifying as racist in elite media hands become racially tinged, racially charged, race-related, And if racism isn't a thing our famously objective reporters can see, well, maybe it's not really out there, right? Things came to a forehead-slapping peak when Representative Steve King said to the New York Times, quote, White nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization, how did that language become offensive? Why did I sit in classes teaching me about the merits of our history and our civilization? Close quote. Endorsing the supremacy of white people. That's racist, right? Leaked reports showed NBC News, for one, instructing staffers otherwise. Be careful to avoid characterizing King's remarks as racist, read the internal guidance, adding, it's okay to attribute to others, as in what many are calling racist or something like that. Well, laugh if you will, NBC was reflecting polite society's rule that besmirching someone, someone white, that is, with the label racist, is worse than degrading the humanity of millions. Shamed on social media, NBC reversed course, and now Industry Bible, the AP Stylebook, is reinforcing the move to reality land. The 2019 edition tells journalists, quote, Do not use racially charged, racially divisive, racially tinged, or similar terms as euphemisms for racist or racism when the latter terms are truly applicable. Mississippi has a history of racist lynchings, not a history of racially motivated lynchings. He is charged in the racist massacre of nine people at a black church, not the racially motivated massacre of nine people at a black church. Close quote. It might seem superficial, but for a press corps that calls itself clever for splintering off fact-checking from reporting, and that chest-thumps about the First Amendment but doesn't defend whistleblowers when they go to prison, symbols can mean a lot. There's something else in the new AP guide. It says, quote, Deciding whether a specific statement, action, policy, etc. should be termed racist often is not clear-cut. 
Such decisions should include discussion with colleagues and or others from diverse backgrounds and perspectives, close quote. That diverse people need to be in the room. That reporting involves listening to and learning from them. Now there's a radical idea. In 1913, the Bureau of Accuracy and Fair Play was established at Joseph Pulitzer's New York World by Pulitzer's own son, Ralph, along with Isaac White. The Bureau focused on errors, complaints, and really aimed to, quote, correct carelessness and to stamp out fakes and fakers, end quote. This bureau would keep track of who was making the worst mistakes in media in order to then call out repeat offenders. At the time, this was actually considered a novel departure. That was actually a, quote, novel departure by a news organization itself because of the previous decades of sensational yellow journalism that were pioneered by William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal, as well as Pulitzer's own New York World. In 1921, two young Yale grads, Harry Luce and Britt Patton, they worked as junior staff reporters for the Baltimore Sun during the post-war recession. They had a dream, a, quote, unquote, crazy half-romantic thing unquote, of starting a weekly publication just called Facts, which is sort of the original Hall Monitor publication. By 1923, they had launched their new magazine officially called Time. And they hired staffers, all women as it turns out, who were researchers to question and confirm their writers reporting before publication. This was extremely novel at the time because prior you sort of just published it and therefore it was true. And now there was this idea of independent fact checkers within an organization. This had yet to reach the point where where we were subjecting Third parties, this was fact checkers checking the journalist internally. The New Yorker, which is like renowned for its own fact checking processes, started doing so in 1927, which was two years after the magazine's founding and really spurred by the publication of a just egregiously inaccurate profile of the poet Edna St. Vincent Millay. Newsweek started its own fact-checking process in 1933. A 2017 article by Merrill Fabry notes that Quote, perhaps the earliest published use of the phrase fact checker could be found in an ad for Time magazine in a 1938 issue of Collier's, which mentions the expansion of Time's researchers and fact checkers from 10 to 22. The political fact check vertical really took off in earnest um, after the new millennium. According to Lucas Graves, a research fellow at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism and author of the book Deciding What's True, the post-9-11 blogosphere is really what birthed the fact-checking industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so on September 19th, 2001, Robert Fisk, the Middle East correspondent for The Independent, a British newspaper, commented that, quote, any idea of America sending its military across Afghanistan is a very, very dangerous operation in a country where America has no friends. Noting that one of its leaders opposing the Taliban in Afghanistan had been killed on September 9th and that the story had gone largely unreported. On December 9th, 2001, blogger Ken Lane responded to Fisk, noting that the story had been covered by mainstream press like the New York Times, LA Times, and BBC, and declared, quote, it's 2001, and we can fact check your ass. And you, like many in the Hate America movement, are no longer able to dress up your wretched reporting and fiction. So from the beginning, fact checking was about scolding people on the left who criticized the assumptions of American imperialism. The appeal to authority is the more traditional 
kind of bourgeois publications, LA Times, BBC, so forth. Factcheck.org, the first major website devoted to like this practice as like its entire reason for being <laughs> launched during the 2004 presidential campaign, really in the wake of the disingenuous Swift Boat campaign targeting John Kerry. Just four years later, during the 2008 campaign, the Washington Post's Fact Checker was created, and the St. Petersburg Times' project PolitiFact kind of went national. But by now, over a decade later, political fact checks are just common, ubiquitous content on most news sites. Vox.com's entire explainer identity basically does a lot of the same thing. There's now even an international fact-checking day observed on April 2nd, notably the day after April Fool's Day. So to sort of explain what we're getting at when we talk about some of the pitfalls and limitations of fact-checking, we're going to start off with examples. And we're going to use them as a platform to talk about some of the broader ideological and philosophical limitations of what we view as being facts. In June 2018, the Washington Post fact checker, which is really the kind of, you know, biggest name mainstream fact checking vertical in the corporate news sphere. It's been run by uh, Glenn Kessler since 2011. And uh, now there are a bunch of staffers that also write their own fact checks. So on June 6th, 2018, fact checker Salvador Rizzo wrote about Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley's statement after visiting the McAllen border station at the U.S.-Mexico border and looking at the human beings that are being held in cages there. The statement, among others, that Merkley gave included they have big cages made out of fencing and then wire and net stretched across the top of them so people can't climb out of them, etc., etc. There were more descriptions. The Washington Post fact checker gave this statement at the time three Pinocchios claiming that kids were not actually being held in cages. However, journalists who were there with Merkley at the time and others who had visited already, including uh, Jacob Soboroff of MSNBC, made it clear that, I mean, there were kids being held in cages that looked like cages that had fences and wire and prevented people from getting out and people were sitting on the concrete floor with tiny little blankets, if blankets at all. Like, this was provable, and yet the Washington Post initially gave this three Pinocchios. So here's what they wrote in the original version, which was since changed after people were understandably outraged. Quote, the way Merkley described the CBC facility in McAllen, hundreds of children in cages with only concrete floors to sleep on, sounds like something out of a Charles Dickens novel. It's indisputable that immigration officials hold kids in chain link fence enclosures for up to 72 hours. Whether the setup is as draconian as Merkley makes it out to be is not something we were able to verify. Well, you just conceded the basic premise, but and you go on to say, quote, Merkley's other claim, the HHS policy of not allowing anyone to visit at shelters for immigrant children is false. The nuanced explanation his spokesman provided does not match the blanket claim Merkley made to CNN. We were on the fence between two and three Pinocchios. As our readers know, the burden of proof is on the speaker. Uh, Merkley and his staff were not allowed to record their tour of the McAllen facility. This leaves us with some photos we found from 2014 that prove some, but not all of the senators detailed and sensitive assertions. We cannot hold it against Merkley if he tried to get visual proof but was barred from doing so. However, the staff knew that HHS has a process to grant access to the Brownville shelter. By the time the senator went on CNN to say no one was ever allowed to visit, he almost certainly knew better. Because of this obfuscation, we settled with three Pinocchios. So the original headline to the article, which was later changed, was, does the U.S. keep immigrant children in cages? Which the author acknowledges they do. They put them in, I think the term was chain lead fences, 
And then so we had the semantic debate about whether chain link fences were cages, which of course they are. And then there was some a bit of rhetorical flourish about the degree to which they were not able to contact people on the outside. And this went from a three Pinocchio, which is one less than the most Pinocchios you can get. <laughs> so then they went back and they like, after the outrage reduced it to two Pinocchios, my guess is probably because they realized that once the kind of full scope of Trump's ethnic cleansing policies came to light, they didn't want to be giving three Pinocchios. And so now we have all, all kinds of evidence. This article is a year old. We now have all kinds of evidence they keep kids in cages. This is now a sort of accepted fact because we have all this documentation. And so their main crux of their three Pinocchios was that he didn't have evidence because the draconian right-wing government wasn't going to let him take pictures. <laughs> and that if you can't provide photo evidence of an observation you make, that's a lie. So much of what makes fact-checking sinister in some ways at the very at best useless is a reliance on sources who are considered officials experts who have their own institutional biases so for one example in 2016 snopes was debunking an article that claimed that obama signed a christmas bill making alternative media illegal this was on a website that frequently traffics in stories that are not true called your newswire and they claimed that the um the bill would effectively criminalize fake news propaganda websites which was certainly oversold. But then in debunking this, they made a massive factual error and a massive appeal to authority. They said, quote, so while neither the bill explicitly rules out targeting the spread of disinformation on the home front, the stated focus in both cases is stemming its flow abroad. More to the point, the focus is on disinformation operating from foreign sources, e.g. China and Russia, not domestic ones. And so to say that this was, quote unquote, mostly false, that it was totally not true, when really it was half true, mm -hmm. they, of course, did pass a law permitting the Global Engagement Center, which we talked about in episode 79, is now we know for a fact used by Trump to propagandize on domestic citizens, but we don't know the whole scope of it. The law absolutely allowed the State Department to propagandize American citizens. We now have evidence that two and a half years later, but Snopes' argument was resting upon, oh, well, the government didn't explicitly say they're doing X, therefore they're not going to do X. Now, anyone with the most basic understanding of history knows that the government when it does something sleazy or sinister, it doesn't tell you it's going to do it in advance. And the real question, the real journalistic question would be to call the State Department or call the GOA, which I did for The Nation a couple months later, where I said, hey, does this law prevent, is there an express prohibition against propagandizing Americans? And they said, no comment. And the reason they said <laughs> no comment was because they were going to allow it. So right. you see this a lot with things like Snopes and PolitiFact, where their source is the government. It's the, mm -hmm. or government aligned, government funded think tanks. There's the there's a default deference to the best intentions of American officials, and that's sort of what creates what they call truth. We now have to talk about CNN's role in this second Democratic primary debate. There is no other way to say it. CNN's production and management of the presidential debate over the last two nights was disgusting. There's no other way to say it. It was everything that is wrong with political discourse and with corporate media. I mean, it just, it, they could have done nothing worse that I can imagine other than cartoonishly terrible things that would never really happen. And I'm really talking about everything. The format was a disaster. Their handling of the digital rights of the content itself was an absolute embarrassment. This really was one of the worst produced debates from start to finish that I can remember. And if this is a signal about what to expect, 
from now until the last debate of 2020, democracy and discourse is in serious trouble, which you probably already knew. And it's hard to know even where to start. I told you yesterday and again in today's debate wrap up that uh, they tried desperately to create fake drama, not even hiding the totally base and brazen ways in which they were just trying to get candidates to call each other out. And first of all, much like with the NBC debate format, that's really the only way that you can sort of do well. As I've talked about, when you have a format which uh, allows for very short answers, even shorter and sporadic rebuttals, sometimes as short as 15 seconds, all you can do is try to bring these kill shot gotcha moments. That is by design, and the format reinforces that, and the moderators regularly trying to pit the candidates against each other not in a way that really helps us explore issues and ideas. Listen to me talk about ideas, uh, but only in a way that encourages these attempts at kill shots. Additionally, the debates were way too long. The first one ran about two hours and 40 minutes. I think the second night was about two hours and 45. But understand that on night one, the first question wasn't asked until 23 minutes had already gone by. They started with these sports team introduction like videos. They included a commercial before you even had the first questions. They did introductions very slowly, bringing the candidates out onto the stage. They did opening statements, which tell us nothing. And then on the second night, 27 minutes went by before the first question was even asked. The opening statements should be done away with. The sportsification of the debates should be stopped. And it's just way too long with such little substance. The second night going even longer and again, almost a half hour before you saw a question. It started at eight. You could have tuned in at eight thirty and have missed only part of the first question. This is an embarrassment. The response windows obviously too short, cutting everyone off sometimes after even only 15 seconds. Anyone who's serious about learning about the positions of the candidates could not have possibly done it from this debate. And I know the NBC one wasn't anything to write home about, but the CNN one was even worse. The moderators were way too much of a presence, almost like they just wanted to hear themselves talk. There are already too many candidates competing for airtime, and we've got the moderators also in that competition. And then half the questions were premised on Republican talking points for so-called liberal media, which CNN is accused of being, they did a hell of a job of asking the questions that Republican would have Republicans would have wanted asked in the ways that Republicans would have asked them. And then, as you know, the digital rights management, CNN shut down my stream on night one on YouTube. They shut down many other streams from semi prominent news and politics YouTubers. They gave us a copyright strike, jeopardizing our entire YouTube account, commandeering an entire day of my time yesterday, ultimately getting that strike repealed, by the way, which is a good thing. Um, and the DNC shouldn't stand for this. The DNC is complicit and the DNC should be demanding that whichever network gets to brand the debate and produce the debate, they should be forced to allow it for repurposing as if it were the State of the Union address on C-SPAN. I actually disagree with debates for public office even being held by private organizations. But if they are, they must be treated like a public service event. We're picking the next president or at least the person who will compete to be the next president in the general election. It can't be a sporting event for profit at the exclusion of everybody else. It was an absolute and total embarrassment. The next one is in September. ABC News Univision together are running it. 
I really hope it's not another disgusting atrocity like what we saw on CNN the last two nights, but it probably will be. We've just heard clips today, starting with Counterspin on how racist voters surprisingly still support racism. Citations Needed explained how the media makes a point to pit labor against environmentalists. The Tom Hartman program explained how the media has picked up on the Republican talking point of demanding that the Democrats move to the center, whatever that means. No Filter discussed the attacks and smears against Bernie Sanders we've come to expect from MSNBC. Counterspin took a look at the corporate media guidelines for calling out racism. Citations Needed explained the quietly devious nature of media fact-checking. And finally, we just heard David Pakman describe the abomination that are the corporate-run presidential debates. Members this week will hear some additional material on the one-man media atrocity and journalistic embarrassment that is John Stossel, and the indefensible reality that many of us first witnessed his propaganda right in our public school classrooms. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Alan calling in from Austin, Texas, but I live in Connecticut, but that's where I am now. Responding to the voicemails regarding Medicare for All and your commentary after, etc. I agree with 95% of what was said, but I think there are two points that are missing, and I'm going to take the easy one first. In the debates, one of the, the biggest concerns I had was this talk about, well, we want to have Medicare for All, but we also want people to have choice to be able to pick their own, if they want to stay with their own health plan. So the mathematics on this really needs to be broken down so people understand. If I'm paying $200 a month now for my own health insurance and Medicare for all is going to give me health insurance for $150 if everybody buys in. But since everybody's not going to buy in because people are going to have choice and they're not sure, well... Now it's going to cost me $220 in an increase in taxes because I won't be paying my own health insurance. It'll be included in the taxes if I go to Medicare for all. It becomes a dynamic that becomes something that I think nobody wants. And I'll tell you, I'm all for Medicare for all, and I can tell you that my health coverage is better than Medicare for all. So that mathematic piece really needs to, to be kind of ironed out and flushed out for the candidates and their proposals and they got to stop with this well you can also keep what you you know what you want to do no i'm sorry it, it it needs to be this is what you need to do period and with regard to the drugs um and and no offense to anybody but but unless you've got an md after your name or unless you've got an aprn last after your name you have no right to pick your drugs if you're picking your doctor and you're having a discussion with your doctor, your doctor's writing the prescription. You should not be telling your doctor what you write a prescription for. There are so many drugs out there, you can't possibly know what's best for you. You can talk with your doctor about your... In a lot of the policies that are there to get 
prescriptions filled, they need to get authorization. And that authorization is being done with the doctor and the, and the back end staff to get the insurance company to cover that medication. So there's a whole bunch of red tape that's currently going on, and I'm not sure that that'll go away in a Medicare for all. But those drugs aren't going anywhere. And it's not like if there's a Medicare for all, all of a sudden the medication you're on is going to be stopped because it's effective and the doctor knows you're effective, but Medicare for all is not going to cover that. That, that situation is not going to happen. I don't believe there's any scenario out there or any proposal out there that's going to say, you know, we're only sticking with these top 10, five drugs for these particular diseases and everyone else is going to have to go into the black market. I don't hear anybody saying that. So anyway, that's my reaction to your episode and those calls and, and the debates and, and life here in Texas where it's really hot. And I'm looking forward to getting back to Connecticut. In the meantime, stay awesome. Hi, best of the left. I'm calling you from France. My name is Marilyn, and I'm lucky to be able to retire in a country where they do have universal health care. But one thing that I seldom, if never, hear in the discussion of Medicare for All in the United States, which I think we should have, is that the only way to control costs is to regulate what is charged for tests, what doctors can charge, what surgeons can charge, what hospitals can charge, whether they're private or public, and what drugs will cost. Regulation is an absolute necessity. Here, there is regulation. A doctor visit is 25 euros for a GP. If you have to go to a specialist, it's 40 euros. And every year, they take a look at it, and sometimes they raise it a little bit. But it's regulated. This must be discussed because it is absolutely necessary. The only way to have Medicare for all is to regulate the cost. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, we've been discussing recently on the show about some of the dynamics that are at play that uh, I believe are causing our show to have a little bit of financial difficulty right now. People have, I think, been uh, getting overwhelmed with politics. They've been sort of dropping out. I've even received messages from people saying, you know, I'm sorry, but I, I either can't support right now or I've stopped listening, but I hope to come back at some point. And uh, it turns out that it's not just me. I, I sort of knew that this was the case and, and would be a more uh, widespread phenomenon. And it's not super recent. Like, I've been noticing this trend for at least a year. And I, I, you know, I hadn't hit the panic button on it when maybe I should have. But, you know, I, I just sort of thought, well, let's, let's see how this goes. Let's see if things turn around. And the trend just sort of continued consistently uh, for at least, as I said, the last year or so. And then it turned out, as I was doing research for today's episode on the topic of media, I came across this clip from my friend David Pakman, who uh, was saying something very similar, but in a slightly different way, 
about a year ago. So maybe he was uh, beginning to feel uh, this, this uh, pattern kick in about the same time I was. And he had some different perspectives on it than I did. So I thought, let me just share this, this little clip to, uh, to add to the conversation. Over the weekend, I um, had a few conversations with the hosts of progressive independent shows like the David Pakman show. And unfortunately, the topic of discussion was that we are all seeing a bit of a decline in support for our programs. And what we saw right after Donald Trump was elected in November of 2016 was a massive increase in the number of people becoming members of our shows, becoming Patreon donors to our shows. And initially, this was catalyzed by the atrocities of the election of Donald Trump and the sort of early policy decisions of his administration. A lot of progressive independent shows in April and May of 2017 were further bolstered by YouTube adpocalypse, where many of our YouTube channels suffered as much as 99% decreases in ad revenue. So from about November of 2016 through about September of last year, there were just massive increases to the number of people supporting independent progressive media shows like the David Pakman show. I don't want to say exactly which other shows I'm talking about because I didn't tell them I'm going to mention by the way that I spoke to you, but you can imagine who they are, right? People know who it is that I talk to. People know who the friends of the show are. And what we've all noticed is that starting in April, right? So about two, three months ago, there have been some issues and I spoke to the other show hosts and everybody is experiencing something very, very similar, which is that we are seeing a sort of waning of Patreon support. If you look at our Patreon page and other show Patreon pages, you will see the number of pledgers of patrons has been sort of trickling down. We're currently in the middle of a free speech TV pledge drive. The pledge drive had to be extended, as you know, Pat, yep. because of slow fundraising. This is not about one show. This is a systemic problem. And I think that there are three issues that are going on here. Number one, hypernormalization has led to waning support for progressive independent media because people are unfortunately starting to get the mindset that, you know what, this is how it is. Uh, Trump saying suspend due process for undocumented immigrants. It's just not feeling that crazy because there have been another uh, another hundred crazy things in the last three months. Hypernormalization is affecting the right, but it is also affecting the left. And I believe it is leading directly to the detriment of independent progressive media. Number two, net neutrality. The repeal of Obama era net neutrality rules has happened, and that is going to be a further systemic threat to progressive independent media. And then number three, media consolidation, which is very clear. It has been made abundantly clear, will be welcomed under the current administration and Justice Department with the purchase of AT&T uh, by AT&T of Time Warner approved. I think it was early last week that we did that story. We've experienced it. Patreon is trailing off a lot of the memberships that swelled last year from demonetization. It's been a year. A lot of those people's credit cards have expired and their memberships are not being renewed. And this is a really bad direction. And it's really fundamentally a question of what you want. If the demand that there was for independent progressive media when Donald Trump was elected, when the marches were happening, when demonetization hit, 
if the demand for independent progressive media wanes, then independent progressive media will also wane in combination with net neutrality being uh, uh, repealed with media consolidation continuing. That is not a good direction. That is not the way I want to see it go. If instead we can refocus and realize, hey, you know what? Our cable bills are about to go up because of what's going on with net neutrality and internet slow lanes and fast lanes. We are increasingly, if we turn on our TV, going to get our news from an increasingly narrow uh, uh, scope and point of view because of that media consolidation. And we don't want that. The path forward is very clear. And we often sugarcoat pad and we use all sorts of different language to talk about uh, support this and support that. Independent progressive media will not survive if it is not supported. So there we go. Uh, David says it as, as well as I could and uh, added to my concerns. I, I've been talking in terms of uh, politics fatigue. And then the other element is uh, increased competition. There's actually been a, a small explosion of progressive media outlets that I'm more uh, particularly aware of because it's my job to curate all of this stuff. And so I'm aware that there's a lot more um, outlets that have sprung up in the last couple of years. And many of them are good and deserve support uh, just as much as the ones that were around before the last couple of years. And then David adds hyper-normalization to the mix. So you can see how we would begin to become concerned about all of this. So a huge thanks to everyone who has been signing up or increasing their donations recently. Some existing patrons have actually upped their donations. A handful of people have made just one-time donations, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, uh, to show their support in this time of need, whether they were a supporter on Patreon or not. And, and so huge thanks to everyone who is chipping in. Uh, we're certainly not out of the woods. If, if you can afford, like, as I always say, two bucks gets you the show ad free. You can even, you can donate as little as a dollar a month on Patreon, but the levels are that two bucks gets you an ad free version of the show, which is just a nice perk for supporting. And six dollars a month is the full membership. And so then you get all of the bonus content in addition to the regular shows ad free, of course. So if you have uh, the money and you're able to support a show like this one and any other progressive media that you find value in, uh, please do. We are at patreon.com slash best of left. Uh, what I would love to see is a change in paradigm, a change in way of thinking, and that people just begin to budget into their lives. Look like I just have to budget in whatever it is, you know, 25 bucks a month that goes to my media outlets and, uh, you know, five bucks each to, you know, my top five shows, something like that. I would love for that to be the way people begin to think of things like this, because it would make all the difference in the world. Uh, what David didn't mention is what's incredibly normal for shows like ours. It's not just that if you support us, we can survive. And if you don't, we won't. But what's already true is that a very, very small percentage of people support shows like this, um, financially anyways. And, uh, so if we can get our membership numbers up from 1%, which is pretty normal up to 2%, 3%, 5%, that would be absolutely game changing. So the, the numbers involved, the actual number of people we need to sign up 
is relatively small, but, you know, I, I say that and then people think, oh, well, you know, someone else will do it. You know, someone else in, in the 5% will do it and I don't have to. And then we all sort of collectively think that and only 1% of people actually follow through. So it's at times like these that we really need to stop thinking, well, someone else will do it because evidently they won't. And one last quick reminder before I go, that your phone can be a powerful force for change. That's because Credo donates $150,000 every month to groups like Friends of the Earth, the ACLU, and Planned Parenthood. So switch to Credo Mobile, the carrier that stands for women's rights, the environment, social justice, and so much more. Learn more at credo.com slash best. That's credo.com slash best. So with that, as always, Keep the comments coming in to the voicemail line at 202-999-3991. And a huge thanks to everyone for listening, whether you donate or support or not. But of course, a particular thanks to those who do support by becoming a member or making donations of any size, again, at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.